0: Um, morning, everyone. Um, good to see you on this sunny summer sun. Well, it's not sunny, is it? In my head, I thought it was going to be a really sunny day and that there might be like five of you here. So it's great to see so many of you here, particularly the group before heading to New Day. What a week you've got in store. It's, uh, yeah, it's sad not to be going. That, that's all I can say. Um, so we are carrying on our series in the Psalms this morning um, under the theme of outrageous worship. Um, and I hope if you weren't here, you've been able to listen to Paul, who kicked off the series last week. He did a fantastic job um, of setting out kind of what we're trying to do in this series and a bit about the Psalms. So he's done a lot of the groundwork for me already. And in fact, the other half of the Norris family here um, did a lot of my work in the worship today. So I really don't know what I'm going to say to you this morning, really. So we'll just, we'll just see where it goes. Um, so if you have got your Bibles? Can you turn to Psalm 73, which is the psalm we'll be looking at this morning? And I chose this psalm for a couple of reasons. Um, The main reason is I think that God has got some really powerful things to show us about outrageous worship through this psalm. And I also chose this psalm because you might see at the top it is called a psalm of Asaph. Now, we're quite familiar with the psalms of David, perhaps, but maybe we haven't explored the other psalmists so much. So I wanted to bring someone else's voice as we study this kind of ancient worship collection of the Hebrew people. So, Asaph, um, he was the second um, most frequent psalm writer. There are a large number of psalms, we don't know who they're written by, but if we had a festival, David would definitely be the headliner. But Asaph wouldn't be that much further down the bill. So, um, I really connect with his psalms, and I hope to introduce you to him this morning. So, I've called this talk Outrageous Worship in the Face of Injustice. Um, that's quite a grand title. It could be outrageous worship in the face of stuff going wrong or in face of bad people. Um, kind of the things we're talking about in worship as well, when our circumstances just aren't there. Why, why do we carry on worshipping? Um, so what we're going to do this morning um, is we're going to fairly quickly go through the psalm kind of in three sections. Um, and we're going to start by looking at a section where Asaph realises well, there's quite a lot of bad people around, but good stuff happens to them. And then he realises, well, I'm a good person, but bad stuff's happening with me. And the whole psalm is essentially wrestling with this question. He does come some breakthroughs, he does come some answers, and we'll absolutely get there as well. Um, So let's kick off. Let's start um, from verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Fantastic start, Asaph. He is on it. This sounds like this is a Hillsong top of the worship charts, (laughs) praise it out kind of number. Surely God is good to Israel. Yes, Asaph. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Hmm. Hmm. Wasn't expecting that. It's not where we thought we were going, this one. So why? Why was his feet almost slipping? Why had he nearly lost his foothold? Uh, Well, let's read on. Verse three. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. Their evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Hmm. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Wow. Wow this is not good. Asaph is looking around the nation, looking around the world, and seeing all kinds of evil behavior seemingly prosper. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. One translation I read said their bodies are fat and sleek. We don't sing that in worship songs, do we? (laughs) We don't sing that, do we? What's going on here? He's jealous. He's essentially jealous. He sees their wealth he sees that they're free from suffering. He sees they've got great bodies. And he's like, really? Really? I'm meant to worship when they get away with this kind of thing? Hmm. And it's not good. The results of all of their arrogance, the results of their wickedness, is that we see pride. We see violence. But most most problematic of all, if we look down at verses 9 to 11, We see that in the way they live and in the things they say, they're actually leading people away from God. They are saying that they have the claim to heaven, the claim to all of the good stuff. And the people think, oh, maybe you do. Actually, maybe following God is a bit of a cul-de-sac. If you've got all of these sleek bodies and all of this money and all of this freedom from suffering, am I just completely barking up the wrong tree by going after God and I could be following in your ways? And they even start doubting God, saying, can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? So this is not a good situation. Bad people, good stuff happening to them. Asaph doesn't know what to do with this. And he concludes in verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, always increasing in wealth.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Hmm.
0: And it raises a very simple question, which as we go on to verse 13 is our next section. And the very simple question is, why bother? Why bother worshipping God? Asaph says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. So Asaph has clearly tried to live righteously. Um, we know that Asaph was in the court of David as well. So he was kind of like a fellow psalm writer. Um, so he was clearly someone who was pursuing God, someone who wanted to know God. And yet he sees this and goes, well, it's in vain, isn't it? I've tried to walk the innocent path and look what happened. They get good stuff. And verse 14, I have been played all day long. I have been punished every morning. Doesn't sound like a good deal does not sound like a good deal as well. And I think it's very easy for us to ask that kind of why bother question, isn't it? Let's think about our own walks in life, maybe the walks we've seen in others, whether inside or outside the church. We do hit those moments when we just have to ask, well, why bother? God, why why should I bother carrying on worshipping you when so many of my prayers seem to have gone unanswered? God, why should I bother carrying on trying to be gracious to that family member when all I get back is abuse or arrogance or stubbornness? God, why should I bother spending my money and spending my time trying to live sustainably when I see people get huge bonuses who run polluting companies? God, why should I bother trying to avoid pornography when you haven't given me the husband or the wife I so desperately deserve? Why bother? Why bother trying? Why bother trying to pursue God this summer when I see so many others around me going on better holidays or having more time off or having less responsibilities? Actually, summer isn't necessarily a happy time for me. Why bother, God? You've given them this and you've given me that. If you've given them this and you've given
1: me that, Why should I worship you? Why bother? Why bother? But this
0: line of questioning, we can see, doesn't sit right with Asaph. And hopefully in our hearts, it doesn't sit right either. So let's read on. If I had said, I would speak thus, this is verse 15, I would have betrayed your children. When I try to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. So Asaph knows he can't actually talking this way to the people. He knows that this isn't the final word and this isn't what's really true. But he's struggling. Verse 16, I'm trying to understand it, God, but actually it's, it's really oppressive. In the face of these circumstances, trying to understand your goodness and trying to understand why it's worth pursuing you is really, really hard
1: Really, really hard. Until, verse 17, until I
0: entered the sanctuary of God. Ah. So we're starting to see a bit of breakthrough here. We're starting to see the tables turn in this psalm of worship. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. And everything that flows in the rest of the psalm comes from this moment when Asaph chooses to enter into the sanctuary of God. Now, the sanctuary of God for the people of Israel was an actual place. um, And there were strict rules about who could go how far into it and how much of God's presence you could experience at particular times and what you had to do before entering into God's presence. So Asaph had entered into that sanctuary to experience God's presence. But how good for us that the sanctuary of God is with us all of the time. How good is it for us that the sanctuary of God is in our hearts and amongst us, and that the Holy Spirit brings us into the presence of God in any moment? Yeah, absolutely. So, as we follow Asaph going on his journey of entering into the sanctuary, this is a journey that we can take. This is a journey that is available for us right now, every moment. So, till I entered the sanctuary of God, Then I understood their final destiny, right? So things are not quite as they seem. It seems like those who ignore God get all of the good stuff and get away with it all. And if we just look um, with our natural eyes, with the eyes of the world, to use a couple of hideously (laughs) Christian phrases, then that's what we'll see as well. (laughs) We'll see bad people getting good stuff. And if we're honest, we might be tempted to think, why not me? But then we see, with God's eyes, we see the true state that the wicked are in. I understood their final destination. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Who writes like this? When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Wow, Asaph has seen the final state, and he is writing about it, and he's praising God to say, "Oh Lord, I see what the end of the wicked is. No, you are not going to let them just prosper in their arrogance, and you're not going to let me just suffer in my innocence. I can see that there is a great turnaround coming. I can see that there is a great reversal on its way. So, Having made this breakthrough, aren't we there? Aren't we there? Aren't we ready to worship God? Aren't we ready to kind of keep on bursting into that sanctuary and praising God? Isn't that what we think Asaph's going to do next? Well, he doesn't quite go there. Not yet anyway. He doesn't quite go there. Because actually God's been taking him on a personal journey through all of this. And we see in the next few verses, God unlock three keys for Asaph that then allow him this outrageous worship to flow. So the first thing we see, we actually see Asaph repent. Verses 21 to 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast towards you. Ah. So this kind of divide between the wicked and the good And they're in that camp. And I'm in this camp. Suddenly, Asaph realises he's he's, he's got a few things wrong himself. Suddenly realises he's got a few problems of his own. He realises that his heart has been hard towards the Lord. He realises that he's let a bitterness grow within him that is not from God. He realises that he, too, has treated God with contempt and that he, too, needs to change his attitude about this what we often call repentance.
1: And until we
0: ourselves recognise our sin, until we are recognised where we have let God down, we we can't with full hearts come before God and worship Him. We need to recognise and own and then have our sin dealt with. And we have got a great advantage over Asaph, haven't we? We have got a great advantage in that we have seen our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, come and deal with all of our sin. We know that it is dealt with. We know that we can repent and that there is mercy and forgiveness and acceptance for us because of what Jesus has done. That also explains why we can come into the sanctuary. Because Jesus has made us pure by his blood. It's not that our thoughts are always pure. It's not that our hearts are always pure. It's not that we don't still struggle. But we know that it's absolutely done, absolutely finished. We are absolutely washed clean by the blood of Christ. And so we have an invitation into the sanctuary of God to worship. So, so reminding ourselves that actually, God, I know that I'm, I'm a bit of a mess. <laughs> I know that I need you. I know that I need your thousand new mercies every day, that I need your grace. Such a refreshing place, such a relieving place to come to as we take the burden off ourselves and we see that Jesus has already borne it and we can enter into his presence and worship. So Asaph teaches us about repentance in these verses. Then in verse 23, he teaches us about identity. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Wow, what confidence he has. He has got absolute confidence that because he is God's, God is always with him and that he is always with God. And we talk a lot about our identity in this church and with good reason. The more secure we are in our identity as children of God, then the more we'll enjoy him and the more we enjoy him, the more we'll worship him. And our identity is secure in God because of what we've just talked about, because he has brought us by the blood of Christ. Our identity is absolutely secure. We are children of God. We are sons of God. We are heirs. So many fantastic descriptions um, in the New Testament, particularly about our identity now in Christ. So if you haven't listened to it or haven't listened to it for a while, I'd really encourage you. To, on our website, listen to the identity series that we ran probably around four years ago now. That gives such a great foundation to understanding how incredible our position is in Christ. How privileged we are in Christ. And just how joyful we can be when we recognise what our true identity was. I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Wow.
1: And then finally, he looks to
0: the future. So he's already told us in really graphic language about what he sees for the wicked in the future from God. And then he says, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Okay, so we've seen the fate of the wicked. Now Asaph sees his fate. He sees that God's future for him is to take him into glory. Now, we use all kinds of words to describe this and sometimes... We use some quite confusing words. So we could talk about going to heaven or, or when Jesus returns. And all of this is perfectly fine language in one way. But we can actually miss out on what God's promise is for us. And God's promise for us is that we will know glory. We will be glorified. We will be in an actual place, in his actual presence forever and ever and ever. There will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. And there will also be a judgment, as we've read about. And actually, as Asaph fixes his eyes on this, fixes his eyes on the fate of the wicked, but then the glory that comes to those who know God and are faithful to God. He, he's set on fire. He's ignited by this. This is, this is his central hope. And actually, I, I just wonder if sometimes um, we, can, we can lose sight of this. Throughout the early centuries of the church, the return of Jesus and the new creation and were the absolute centre point of what they rested their, their hope on. That was what drove all of their activity, all of their mission, all of their radical lifestyles. It was driven by the fact that their eyes firmly fixed on the belief that Jesus will return and he will come back and he will take us to glory. And that's an important part of our diet, of our faith. It's, it's not always the easiest thing to think about because in some ways it seems so remote. But actually... No one knows the day or the hour. The return of Jesus is just as imminent now as it was 2,000 years ago when he first ascended. So let's keep our eyes on that. So we have these three keys to worship, three keys to outrageous worship, I'd like to say, unlocked by Asaph. Repentance, knowing our identity, and having our eyes set on the future. So let's see what the result of this is. Verse 25 Whom have I in heaven but you, and have an earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your good deeds. So here it comes. Here comes the worship. Here comes the praise. It's not the route we expected. We started off with, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then we went on this journey until finally he can say, having entered into the sanctuary of God and having had these keys of worship revealed to him, that as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge I will tell of all of your good deeds.
1: So that's ASAS journey. But what
0: does it it mean for us? What does it mean for us in the everyday? Well, I think there are three key questions that we should look to answer in this psalm. So the first is what does this psalm tell us about extravagant, extravagant, sorry, outrageous worship? Secondly, How does this psalm help us understand our prophetic call as a church to be a church of outrageous worship? Um, Paul read from the prophecy received from Julian Adams last week. And that is something we're going to be coming back to time and time again in this series. So we really feel it's something God wants us to unpack and explore. So what does it mean for us as a church um, to be a church of outrageous worship? Then finally, how can this help us very practically in our spiritual walks? over the summertime. So at the top, what does this psalm tell us about extravagant worship? Well, it shows us that in the face of any circumstance, in the face of any injustice, there is still a route to worship God. And me and Pam honestly didn't talk before the worship today. That was entirely uncoordinated. But everything that Pam was bringing at the start and through the songs is really applicable to the journey that Asaph goes on in this psalm and to our understanding of outrageous worship. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the injustice, we can still lift high the name of God. And that is outrageous. That is outrageous. It shows us that this this humility of repentance, this identity and this future hope lie at the heart of worship. Worship isn't just expressions of happiness or joy towards God. It is that but it is not only that. There is a deep and a rich foundation to our worship that God has given us through the scriptures and that he is displayed in the life and the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus Christ. Tying our worship not to ourselves but what to a man who lived in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago did, that's outrageous. That doesn't happen but that's what we are called to do. That is outrageous worship. But we also see in the early verse of this psalm, when Asaph was going through all of the evil things that people were doing, that I asked some questions, maybe some challenging questions, about how our lifestyles contrast the lifestyles of the wicked. What's that got to do with worship? Well, again, Paul did a great job last week of unpacking this idea that actually outrageous worship is living our whole lives in response to God. Every aspect of our life, every breath, every moment is a worship moment. So it is what we do here on Sunday mornings. But It is not just what we do here on Sunday mornings. In fact, it's not mainly what we do here on Sunday mornings. It's how we live our whole life in response to the love and the presence of grace of God that we have encountered. So, yes, how we speak to our colleague on a Monday morning, that is worship. Being kind to that person who it is so hard to be kind to, that is outrageous worship. Going without things in life in order to live well and live as God intended us, that is outrageous worship. And people won't understand it. People won't understand it. So if you get people questioning you about, well, why are you doing this? You're probably doing a great job of outrageously worshipping God. So be encouraged. Be encouraged in that. So our whole lives as worship to God, that is outrageous. So just taking a bit of a twist on that question, what does that mean for us as a church? If if we agree that outrageous worship is living our whole lives for God, regardless of circumstances and in the face of opposition, what does that mean for us as a church? Well, at the moment, I think we're in a really blessed position of having a lot of favour as a church. I think we've got favour in our community. I think we've got favour in our wider church network. And um, I think we've, we've got favour in Solihull. But when we worship God, we've got to be aware opposition can always come. Just because we are in this favour position now doesn't mean we won't be in the future. People might not like some of the things we say about God being God and Jesus being the only way. They may not like some of the things we believe in terms of living our whole lives, including our sexuality for God. They may not like some of the things we say in terms of of being able to experience God really and personally and know the presence in the Holy Spirit. We might even face some oppositions from other Christians on that point. So we've got to be aware that as a church, we are currently really blessed. but We've always got to be aware that we may be in a position of opposition. And actually, the enemy is always working, so he is always going to be thinking of ways to line up people to oppose us. And that's going to be a test for us. In the face of that opposition, do we carry on outrageously worshipping God? Do we keep on saying, God, you are good? Even when we personally may be suffering reputation damage, there may be protests. We don't know. We just don't know what the future is going to hold for us as a church. So will we keep on declaring the glory of God and keep on declaring the goodness of God in the face of that opposition? I think that is something we've got to take on board as a church. But then secondly, I think this shows us that as we seek to be ourselves a prophetic message to the wider church in terms of modelling outrageous worship, I think it means for us making sure we've got all of these elements in place, all of these worship. So all of these elements around humility, repentance, looking back and looking forward, proclaiming the whole gospel of God from start to finish. Being a church of the whole story, but not a church that just looks at the story as something that has happened, but that's something that is happening right now and that we are a part of and that we are joining in of. And that we take hold from heaven of all of the things we believe God has for us, all of heaven's resources, we don't have to pick and choose as Christians. We see there are we see there are different kinds of strands in the church. Some strands do this, some strands do that. We like to put ourselves in boxes, we like to put others in boxes. But actually, God says, if it's in the Bible, you can have it all. You can have it all. We can focus on worshiping God in the Spirit and deeply understanding His Word. Absolutely no contradiction. We can We can worship God through being a church who both demonstrates his gospel through how we live our lives and who proactively proclaims God as evangelists. There is no contradiction between demonstrating the gospel and being evangelists for the gospel. As a church of outrageous worship, I think God is really calling us to take hold and have it all. Um, But let's 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 um, let's think about. Our own personal walks now. So if that's the kind of corporate implications this psalm, what about our personal walks with God this summer? Well, as I say, summer can be a time that we check out a bit spiritually. Um, We are so bound to kind of cycle of school terms, even if we're not parents or don't have children in school, that actually we can can see summer as a bit of a time off, a bit of a check out time. but last time I looked in scripture, God didn't operate according to the school holidays of the United <laughs> Kingdom. So actually, I want to challenge any of that thinking. <laughs> Very Summer is a wonderful time. Summer is a wonderful time to pursue our walk with God. And maybe we can pursue it in slightly different ways than normal than we can do in term time. Maybe there is a bit of extra space in your schedule. Maybe you have got a holiday booked. Um, so the first thing I'd like to say is if you have, um, if you have got something along those lines... Um, Why don't you put together a a bit of a reading list or a bit of a podcast or sermon listening list um, of things to kind of keep on shaping your thinking and keep on drawing you close to God over the summer? And why not read a book on the cross? Why not read a book on our identity? And why not read a book on the return of Jesus and the new creation? That kind of balance, past, present, future. I think that could be a really magnificent summer for so many of us. But maybe that's not the position we're in this summer. Maybe you related to the challenge that I threw out earlier, that actually, well, I'm not really looking forward to summer. I'm going to be in a tiny caravan somewhere while my friends are going to be on a cruise. (laughs) Or actually, I take the caravan. I'm not going on holiday at all. Or, well, I've still got people to look after. I've got older relatives or younger children to look after. And actually, school being out isn't a great thing for me. What do I say to you? Well, I say, look, look at Asa's journey again. Look, look, look at what he saw. Look at the suffering he was in. And he found his breakthrough in the sanctuary of God. So it's not easy. It's not easy when we face hard circumstances to come into the sanctuary. And I wouldn't want anything I said to pretend that it is easy. But what we do know is that God is there when we come in. We know he's there. He has promised he is with us at all times. Whether we feel him or not, in a particular moment, we can say, God, I know you are with me. And with this problem, with this situation I'm in, with this, quite frankly, this is something I'm not really looking forward to, I'm going to come to you and say, God, you are with me. Show me what to do with this. You are good. I worship you. And also be encouraged that probably there are others in the same boat as you. There are others in the same boat as you as well. So. um as we walk in this journey of outrageous worship, it's not a journey we walk alone. It's a journey that we walk as one another's in the church. The word one another comes up a number of times in the New Testament. I'm not going to tell you the number because I get it wrong. But there is so, so many times the New Testament writers exhort us to encourage one another, worship together. And over the summer we can get a bit disconnected. Um, there's there's a week we don't meet, for example. But usually numbers are down, people are away, maybe your life group isn't on. So i would encourage you to try and keep on making those connections with each other through the summer. Keep keep on one anothering each other. It's not a time. Likewise, it's not a time to put God in the back seat for the summer holidays. It's also not a time to put each other in the back seat for the summer holidays. So. Let's keep on making those connections so that we can encourage each other in our outrageous worship.